ground by applying for a job at the hot.com of the moment, Netscape. Musk didn't receive a reply from Netscape, but he also wasn't rejected outright. So he decided to venture to Netscape's offices and loiter in the lobby. Perhaps there he could start a conversation that would lead to something. This didn't pan out either. I was too shy to talk to anyone he later told Dig founder Kevin Rose. So I'm just, like, standing in the lobby. It was pretty embarrassing. I was just sort of standing there, trying to see if there was someone I could talk to, and then I was too scared to talk to anyone. So then I left. Netscape off the table, he wrestled with whether to attend grad school or start an internet company. I was trying to think... What would most influence the future? What are the problems we have to solve? He said. While at UPenn, he made a short list of the impactful fields of the near future. The internet, space exploration, and sustainable energy. But how would he, Elon Musk, best position himself to influence the fields that would influence the future? He approached Peter Nicholson for guidance. They discussed Musk's next steps on a long walk around Toronto. Nicholson told him, Look, Elon, the dot-com rocket is ascending. The time is perfect to take your good idea and take a risk with it, because you can always go back and do your PhD. That opportunity is going to stay on the table. Coming from Nicholson, a Stanford PhD himself, the advice carried weight. Still, Musk left the University of Pennsylvania in the summer of 1995, intending to start his Stanford graduate program. But upon returning to the Bay Area, Nicholson's advice grew harder to ignore. I would spend several years watching the Internet go through this incredibly rapid growth phase, and that would be really difficult to handle. So I really wanted to be doing something, Musk said. He requested a deferment from Stanford to begin his program in January 1996 instead of September 1995. Though cast today as one of business's consummate risk-takers, the Musk of 1995 was conflicted about abandoning grad school. I'm not a born risk-taker, he told an interviewer for UPenn's Pennsylvania Gazette just years after. I also had a scholarship and financial aid, which I'd lose. Upon receiving his deferral, Musk's Stanford department contact reportedly told him, Well, give it a shot, but I bet we'll see you in three months. In 1995, Musk began writing software for a website uniting vector maps, point-to-point directions, and business listings. Musk brought his brother on board, and together, they bootstrapped the company with their own savings and several thousand dollars from Greg Corey, a Canadian businessman they had befriended, who came aboard as a co-founder. Corey had been approached by May Musk, Elon and Kimball's mother, who told him about her sons and their ambitions. Corey passed away in 2012 at age 51, 
but his widow recalled her late husband sharing the story of his bet on the Musk brothers. May told him, I have these two sons, and they have this idea, Jean Corey shared. In time, Corey would play a vital role in the business, and in the lives of the Musk brothers. Several years older and with a nose for business, he lived with Kimball and Elon during these early formative years. I think Elon and Kimball loved him like a big brother, said Gene Corey, because he became like their big brother. Musk spoke of Corey with affection. Greg was really one of my closest friends, he recalled. He called Corey a trickster with a heart of gold, someone who used his powers for good. The team rented a Spartan Palo Alto office space, drilling a hole through the floor to secure internet access from their downstairs neighbors. Musk slept at the office and showered at the nearby YMCA. In this, Musk mimicked his maternal grandfather, a chiropractor named Dr. Joshua Haldeman. During World War II, Dr. Haldeman was so busy with his political and economic research that he had little time for his practice and lived at the YMCA. The Musks named their new company Global Link Information Network and formally registered the business in early November 1995. The company's first-ever press release demonstrated the brothers' inexperience. They had failed to settle on a name for the product before announcing it. The February 2, 1996 edition of the San Francisco Chronicle ribbed them. The new product is called either Virtual City Navigator or Total Info, which we keep wanting to read as Total Fino, the name of a new Italian soft drink. The item in the Dateline section read. The accompanying letter says it is Global Link's first news release, and this is evident in a number of ways, not the least being that it's hard to tell whether the product is named Total Info or Virtual City Navigator. Whatever was in a name, the San Francisco Chronicle gave the two unknowns their first mention in American media. The lads are from South Africa, where, Kimball said, they owned the third IBM PC in the country, an XT with a mere 8K of memory and no hard drive. Datelines is suitably odd. Sarcasm aside, the Musk brothers had reason to be proud. They had earned national press coverage within months for something they'd built. Things moved rapidly from there. After multiple failed pitches for venture capital, Global Link secured a $3.5 million investment round led by more David Alventures. In fundraising yet again, the brothers' greenness showed. They were originally asking for a $10,000 investment for 25% of their company. Investor Steve Jervitson later shared with author Ashley Vance for his biography of Musk. That is a cheap deal. When I heard about the $3 million investment, I wondered if more David Al had actually read the business plan. Musk was astonished, too. I thought they were on crack, he said to a journalist two years later. They don't know anything about us, and they're going to hand over $3.5 million? The brothers ditched Global Link, Total Info, and Virtual City Navigator 
and a branding firm devised a new name for the company, Zip2. They registered the www.zip2.com URL on March 24, 1996, and recruited an experienced CEO, Rich Sorkin, to run the business. At first, they had set out to build a consumer website, an aspiring Yahoo, Lycos, or Excite, with a focus on neighborhood shops and stores. But selling internet ads to small businesses proved a challenge in 1996, with many mom-and-pops uninterested. So Zip2 pivoted and explored partnerships with big telecom companies like Pacific Bell, U.S. West, and GTE to help them expand their internet ad offerings. In July 1996, Kimball Musk told a trade publication that Telecom companies have a lot of experience and strength in marketing, but not a lot in developing internet technology. Zip2 could provide the telecoms with internet bench strength, but when the telecom companies signaled that they wanted to run internet advertising in-house, the Zip2 team abandoned that approach too. Zip2 then recast itself as a world-class technology platform that enables media companies to extend their local franchise and dominate online local advertising. In practice, this meant boosting media companies' digital ad sales and building local city guides. The concept showed promise. Zip2 signed deals with big players like Knight Ritter and Landmark Communications. One influential trade publication declared Zip2 Newspaperdom's new superhero, writing that the mild-mannered software firm has muscled its way to the front of the online directory pack to lead the newspaper industry's counterattack against the telcos and Microsoft. At the start of their North American lives, Elon and Kimball Musk hustled to meet the subjects of Canadian newspaper stories, now, only a few years later, they were being heralded as the American newspaper world's white knights. The next few years blurred together as Zip2 raced to compete against Microsoft, CitySearch, AOL, and Yahoo for a slice of the $60 billion local advertising pie. Musk had his first real taste of startup life during this period, with its requisite highs and lows. Zip2's innovations, working digital maps, a free email service, even a feature to reserve a seat at a restaurant via fax machine, thrilled Musk. The general-purpose programming language Java launched in January 1996. By September, Musk and his technology team had put Java at Zip2's core. Dr. Lou Tucker, a senior director at Javasoft, sang Zip2's praises. Zip2's groundbreaking maps and directions are some of the most powerful real-world applications of Java on the Internet today, said Dr. Tucker in a much-improved Zip2 press release. The true convergence of advanced technology and everyday practicality. Zip2 grew throughout late 1996 and 1997 as Knight Ritter, SoftBank, Hearst, Pulitzer Publishing, Morris Communications, and the New York Times Company invested millions. 
only two years into its existence, the company powered sections of 140 different newspaper websites. By mid-1997, Zip2 had become an entity that, in effect, functioned as a kind of mini-Microsoft, wrote one industry observer. The growth came at a price, though. In the fall of 1996, Musk clashed with his investors and fellow executives, who raised questions about his leadership. Impatient and perpetually sleep-deprived, he was prone to setting unreasonable deadlines, chewing out other executives and colleagues in the open, and retooling code written by other people without asking first. Later, Musk acknowledged these weaknesses and explained that until Zip2, he had never run much of anything, had never been a sports captain or a captain of anything or managed a single person. He recalled to biographer Ashley Vance a moment in which he publicly humiliated a colleague by correcting his work in front of others, thereby poisoning the relationship. Eventually I realized, okay, I might have fixed that thing, but I've made that person unproductive. It just wasn't a good way to go about things, he said. Zip2 kept Musk on as its CTO and allowed him to remain chairman of the board. But as the company expanded, his influence over its strategic direction shrank. In his diminished role, Musk grew frustrated with what he saw as the company's narrowed ambitions. He had envisioned Zip2 as the next Yahoo!, but it had now become a glorified shill for the newspaper industry. We developed awesome technology that essentially got captured by the traditional media industry and the VCs, Musk remembered. I was like, wait, we've got essentially the equivalent of an F-35 joint strike fighter, and the way that the media company wants to use them is by rolling them down the hill at each other. Musk lobbied unsuccessfully to change course. He pushed for Zip2 to buy the site city.com, and in 1998 he took the fight to the press, pointedly telling the New York Times, We think the real battle is with Yahoo and AOL to become a local portal. But Zip2's board, investors, and executive team disagreed. In their view, the media companies were paying powerful customers. Becoming the next Yahoo was a fantasy. It wasn't a philosophical issue, said Rich Sorkin, the company's CEO. We went where the money was. Zip2 struggled throughout 1998. A proposed merger with its biggest rival, CitySearch, went awry. The Charlotte Observer, an early and prominent client, canceled its Zip2 city guide, complaining of slowing ad sales. The Observer's complaints were emblematic of an industry-wide problem. Despite all the interest from advertisers, the New York Times wrote in September of 1998, no city guide has consistently shown a profit. It all came to a conclusion early the following year. In February 1999, Zip2 sold to Compaq Computer for $307 million in cash. For Compaq, the acquisition united its AltaVista search engine 
with Zip2's local listings and ad business. For Musk, the purchase meant a $21 million payday. To this day, that moment astonishes him. The amount, as well as the means of delivery. The millions arrived by check. Literally, to my mailbox. I was like, this is insane. What if somebody... I mean, I guess they'd have trouble cashing it? But it still seems a weird way to send money. The deal let him move on from Zip2. My bank account went from like $5,000 to $21,005,000, he said. He was 27 years old. After his exit, Musk became a figure of interest in the media, a role he embraced. Although he speaks rapidly and dresses as casually as any Silicon Valley techie, one writer observed of Musk, he has the clean-cut appearance and impeccable manners of a Mormon missionary. With his fresh millions, Musk bought himself a condo in Palo Alto and a $1 million McLaren F1 sports car. Money and fame were welcome, but Musk felt that Zip2's success came with an asterisk. The company had triumphed financially, but Musk felt it was handicapped technologically. He took deep pride in Zip2's innovations, creating some of the first working online maps, for instance. But those technological pearls, Musk believed, were cast before swine. Zip2's products had not exhibited the awesome potential of the Internet, at least not to the extent he'd hoped. I knew how to develop technology, he observed, but I hadn't seen it flourish, and it had been stifled. Musk admired both capitalists and scientists. But as in his days at UPenn, his fascination with science prevailed. The business types treated the Internet as the 20th century's latest garish gold rush. Musk saw it differently. I thought it was something that would fundamentally change the world, he said. It was like a nervous system for the world that would potentially make humanity somewhat of a superorganism. To Musk, this nervous system fused science fiction with hard science, a cocktail of Adams and Feynman, and he spoke of it with unselfconscious amazement. Previously, we could only communicate by osmosis. One person would physically have to go to another person. For a letter, someone has to carry the letter he observed. And now you could be in the middle of the Amazon jungle, and if you had just one satellite signal to the internet, you would have access to all the world's information. That's unreal. Unreal, yet being made real all around him. Musk craved the chance to do more. He wanted to be responsible, as he put it, for constructing the Internet's building blocks. Zip2 was now behind him. More than a little cash lay before him. It was time for his next venture. Chapter 4 What Matters to Me is Winning As an intern in 1990, Musk couldn't get over Scotiabank's unwillingness to innovate. But through the intervening decade of rapid technological progress, 
big banks across the board seemed only to have doubled down on their intransigence. The Internet was everywhere, yet bank leadership eyed it with all the wariness of the small business owners to whom Musk had unsuccessfully tried to sell Zip2's digital ads. In 1995, when Musk was still building Zip2, online banking was a contradiction in terms. Even as more banks stepped into the digital world, their online offerings were barely more than brochures bolted onto the Internet. One example, Wells Fargo's website, circa late 1994. A site visitor saw a carefully sorted catalog of information, all beneath images of the bank's iconic stagecoaches. That is, if they could open the site at all. Unfortunately, with dial-up internet access the norm, a historian at the bank later admitted, the colorful stagecoach pictures downloaded one line at a time and took several minutes to load the whole site. Wells Fargo customers lodged complaints and asked a sensible product question. When can I check my account balance on the website? Of course, Musk wasn't alone in thinking that offline banks were too slow to move online. By the late 1990s, the digital finance and banking space swarmed with startups. But Musk found those services lacking in one respect or another. He wasn't keen on launching just another dot-com bank. Musk's vision for his new financial services firm was, unsurprisingly, ambitious. What if, he wondered, a single entity unified a person's entire financial life? In some of his earliest investor pitches, he called this idea the Amazon of financial services, finance's one-stop shop offering not just standard-issue savings and checking accounts, but everything from mortgages to lines of credit, stock trading, loans, and even insurance. Wherever money went, Musk believed his new company should go too. His vision was both eminently logical and impossibly grandiose. Musk wasn't just pitching a new company. He was pitching half a dozen companies in one. Money's underlying infrastructure, he felt, was long overdue for an upgrade. He'd describe both banks and government's bunch of mainframes, ancient mainframes, running ancient code, doing batch processing with poor security, and a series of heterogeneous databases, like this herky-jerky frickin' monstrosity. Translation 1990s-era banking infrastructure was bad. He saw its primary operators, bankers, as armies of middlemen charging big fees and offering little of merit in return. There was a desire among banks to build very large buildings, for some reason, Musk joked. They're very into having adjectives in front of vice president, senior vice president, executive vice president, senior executive vice president. Musk's critique extended even to seemingly vital financial infrastructure, like stock exchanges. I said, Well, why don't we just allow people to trade with each other? So if I want to send you stock, why don't I just send you a share of whatever? 
I don't need to go through anything. The exchange is unnecessary. The right code, in other words, could obsolete even the NASDAQ. But someone had to write that code. Someone had to build, run, and own the databases that would replace high finances, tall buildings, richly titled personnel, and the exorbitant fees funding it all. Musk believed that someone could be him. One of the first people Musk pitched his idea to was Harris Fricker, a Canadian financial executive. Musk and Fricker had been introduced by Peter Nicholson while Musk was working at Scotiabank. They're both intensely bright guys, Nicholson said of his protégés. I thought the two of them would make a pretty potent brain trust. Fricker hailed from Inganish, a rural community in Nova Scotia. The son of a construction worker and a nurse, he excelled in university and earned one of the eleven Rhodes Scholarships awarded to Canadian students. In England, he studied economics and philosophy, and afterward returned to Canada to work in banking. As Musk achieved his dot-com success, Fricker flourished in finance, becoming the head of a securities firm in his late twenties. Like others, Fricker was intrigued by the emergence of the Internet. In late 1998, Musk pitched Fricker his idea for a new kind of financial services firm. He's one of the greatest salesmen I have ever met, Fricker said of Musk's entreaties. Like a Steve Jobs, when he articulates something, he tends to find the kernel that will appeal to a broad mass intuitively. By early 1999, Fricker was sold. He gave up his million-dollar salary and moved to Palo Alto. Soon thereafter, Fricker recruited a third co-founder, Christopher Payne. Payne graduated from Queen's University in Ontario, after which he worked in finance and private equity, then pursued an MBA at Wharton. He also nurtured an amateur interest in computers, tinkering with hardware and writing elementary code on nights and weekends. His day job was quickly becoming technology-packed, too. At BMO Nesbitt Burns, the private equity firm he joined following Wharton, Payne's desk overflowed with business plans for Internet startups. Payne met Fricker when they both worked at BMO Nesbitt Burns, and years later, when Fricker left private equity to join a SiliconValley.com, Fricker lobbied Payne to come with him. What do you want to tell your children 20 years from now when they ask where you were at the birth of the Internet? At a stodgy old bank or on the front lines? Payne remembers Fricker telling him. In 1999, Payne packed for Palo Alto, where he soon got his first impression of Musk. Very high energy. Payne remembered. Very much, let's go, let's get going and do something, build something, achieve something. At Musk's home one day, Payne walked into the bedroom. The room was literally filled with books, biographies or stories about business luminaries and how they succeeded, Payne said. In fact, I remember sitting there and at the top of this stack was a book about Richard Branson. It kind of clicked to me that Elon was prepping himself 
and studying to be a famous entrepreneur. He had some superordinate goal that was driving him. Rounding out the co-founder cohort was Ed Ho, a Musk recruit. Ho had earned degrees in electrical engineering and computer science at Berkeley, and worked at Oracle following graduation. Later, Ho joined Silicon Graphics, a great hub of engineering talent. But by the mid-1990s, Ho's colleagues started fleeing their plum Silicon Graphics jobs for positions at Internet startups. The exodus swept up Ho's boss, Jim Ambrose, who left for a company called Zip2, and recruited Ho to join him. Ho enjoyed Zip2's engineering challenges, including a final memorable project, building apps for the era's primitive mobile phones. Imagine you could type in two addresses, which is a real pain on those cell phones, and then you get directions on your phone, Ho said. At Zip2, Ho got his first exposure to Musk's leadership style. Every time I pushed an idea, Ho recalled, Elon would say, go do it. He appreciated that Musk acted less like an executive and more like a line engineer, remembering how he would throw himself into all-night sessions of the video games StarCraft and Quake, where his competitive streak showed through. He's Mr. Starcraft, Ho said. Video games soon led to a friendship. You stay late, Ho remembered, and then eventually you start playing games and then you become friends. Before the ink had dried on Compaq's Zip2 acquisition, Musk had begun pitching Ho on his next startup. In retrospect, you're not supposed to do that, Ho said. Technically... Musk was bound by Zip2's non-compete clauses, but he regularly ran afoul of such rules, often with relish. Ho recalled Musk's jubilance when Silicon Graphics finally sent a formal complaint about Zip2 poaching from its ranks. In the early months of 1999, Musk's new company was essentially some ideas in Musk's mind but Ho joined enthusiastically as employee number four. There's a wave, right? Ho said. And you either catch the wave or you can sit there waiting, and Yahoo goes by. The original team of four divvied up responsibilities. Musk and Ho would drive technology and product, while Fricker and Payne handled the company's financial, regulatory, and operational elements. Even before they had a product, Musk chose the venture's name, X.com. This was, Musk believed, simply the coolest URL on the Internet. He wasn't the only one who thought so. In the early 1990s, a pair of engineers, Marcel de Paulus and Dave Weinstein, had bought www.x.com for their company Pittsburgh Power Computer. They sold the company, but held on to the x.com URL, using it for their personal email addresses. Over the years, DePaulus and Weinstein turned down bids to sell the URL, underwhelmed by the various offer terms. In early 1999, they received fresh interest. 
Under the looming shadow of Y2K, we were approached by Elon Musk, they said. This time, the deal terms proved more interesting. They sold X.com to Musk in exchange for cash and 1.5 million shares of the company's Series A stock. The negotiation drew the interest of the Wall Street Journal, which included it in a story about startup equity. A story that, as chance had it, included another young entrepreneur, Max Levchin, explaining how he used stock to secure office space. Musk came out of the deal sporting, among other things, a memorable corporate email address, e at x.com. Musk believed deeply in the x.com URL and company name, even in the face of criticism that it sounded confusing or sinister. To him, x.com was novel, intriguing, and open-ended enough to capture the company's gist, a place for all banking and investment services to coexist. Just as X marked the spot on a treasure map, so X.com marked the spot where money would be kept online. He also enjoyed pointing out that the URL was rare, one of only three single-letter .com URLs in the world at the time, the other two, Q.com and Z.com. Musk had a practical rationale for the name, too. He believed the world would soon be overrun with handheld devices, pocket-sized computers with index card-sized keyboards. In this world, x.com was the ideal URL because a customer was only ever a few thumbstrokes from their full financial life. Musk's conviction about x.com also stemmed from his consternation with the name Zip2. First of all, what the hell does it mean? It's literally one of the worst URLs you could possibly have. Because is it zip the digit 2? Or is it zip T-W-O? Or zip T-O? Or zip T-O-O? Musk said. You just picked the homonym with the most number of variations. And websites don't work with homonyms. So it's dumb in every possible way. Heads down writing Zip2's code, Musk had outsourced the renaming of Globalink, and regretted it. I deferred brand and marketing and whatever to people I thought were domain experts, Musk said, and then discovered subsequently that you just have to use common sense. And that's actually a better guide. To Musk, X.com's name was everything Zip2's wasn't. And he was convinced X.com would become everything Zip2 had it. He was really passionately inspired by that letter, Payne recalled. Musk rolled much of his Zip2 windfall into X.com, investing $12.5 million and purchasing the X.com domain with personal funds. At the time, I thought, he's nuts. Honestly, that's risk, Ho said. Indeed, staking so much of one's net worth on a new startup was noteworthy, in large part because Musk didn't have to. A successful exit like Musk's from Zip2 generated its own halo, and others were now readily willing to invest in Musk's new venture. He could get a meeting on a phone call's notice, Payne remembered.
serious venture firms, New Enterprise Associates, more David Al Ventures, Sequoia Capital, Draper Fisher Jurvetson, among others, were eager to hear his vision for an online financial services firm. Fricker, with his traditional finance background, was astonished at how casual it all seemed. The team would arrive at pitch meetings without so much as a presentation prepared, and they'd successfully draw interest. One of the things that Elon was highly adept at, which, frankly, I underestimated, was on the VC side, Fricker said. He would articulate what was wrong with the industry, you know, the big monoliths, the lack of democracy in pricing. Everybody would get all fired up. Despite the venture capitalist's enthusiasm, Musk stuck to his own funding for the time being. His commitment to self-funding had two virtues. First, it gave Musk full ownership and operational control over X.com. This time, at least for now, there would be no investors to sideline him. Second, Musk's personal investment made for a winning recruitment pitch. I'd make a phone call for recruiting or whatever, Ho remembered, and say, oh, he's got 13 million in. With the competition for engineers reaching a fever pitch, every bit of buzz mattered, up to and including a high-profile founder betting his fortune on the company. X.com's recruitment efforts paid off on both the engineering and financial talent fronts. Stephen Dixon, an executive from Bank of America, joined as CFO. Julie Anderson, a former analyst at Deutsche Bank, joined the business team as well. On the product and engineering teams, X.com added Sihan Tung, a friend of Frickers and Payne's from Canada, Harvey Tang, X.com's principal architect, Doug Mack, a software engineer, and Chris Chen, a former insurance analyst from Hawaii and a friend of Ed Ho's. Musk also courted an attorney, Craig Johnson, to be an X.com advisor. Craig was a legal tour de force in the Valley at the time, Fricker said. Landing Johnson sent loud signals about X.com's seriousness. It was also time for a serious address, and the team moved into a leased office space at 394 University Avenue. From its new vantage, X.com trained its sights on other retail and dot-com bank competitors. There were a few other internet banks out there in the marketplace at the time, and they were trading for roughly four times book value per share. And the regular banks are trading around two times. So there's this huge premium for internet banks, one early X.com employee recalled. And so Elon's business plan was basically, I'm an internet guy, I can do this. This will be the first Silicon Valley-funded bank, so therefore it will be more successful than all the others. One of the team's online targets was NetBank, which was founded in 1996 and advertised itself as the digital bank of the future. In mid-1997, the company went public at $12 per share. By 1999, NetBank's stock price was seven times higher. Despite NetBank's success, Ho remembered the confident tone around the X.com office. We're just going to crush them. 
but it was more hope and hype than plan. Basically, our thought process, and this is kind of negative to say, is that those banking guys knew nothing. They might know banking. They know nothing about technology and the consumer, Ho said. Partly, they were responding to comments from NetBank's founder. We are a bank and we are regulated, he told one reporter in 1998. Amazon.com, no one looks at their ratios. He wanted the world to know that his company was a genuine bank, and not a flybynight.com. As if to prove the point, NetBank operated out of Georgia, not Silicon Valley. For Musk and X.com, this amounted to clear evidence that NetBank and its competitors in the digital banking space weren't techy enough. X.com was techy, all right, and would defeat them by getting to market fast, lowering fees and minimums, and aggressively acquiring customers. To achieve their speedy go-to-market, the team opted to work with third-party vendors, using existing software that had been licensed to and approved by traditional banks, then building products atop that code. The trade-off is that you don't own the core software, Ho recalled. But the good side is that all the accounting and the regulatory issues are handled. Even with its adaptations of third-party software, X.com soon entered a regulatory hellscape. Lines of credit, cash advances, mortgages, bonds, stock trading, even the mere storage of money were all subject to complex state and federal rules, governed by long-standing agencies like the FDIC, who are hardly accustomed to dealing with jeans-wearing Silicon Valley execs. The team hired the law firm Deckard Price and Rhodes to take on these regulatory issues. But even with that support, the team was up against regulatory headwinds. The fact that X.com's CEO had committed to a revolution in finance, integrating all types of financial services under one roof, made matters more difficult. Revolution and regulations didn't mix well. Musk wanted to fuse retail banking with investment banking, for example, which the Glass-Steagall Act of 1993 expressly forbade. Only in April 1999 was legislation introduced to allow the two entities to mix, and it would still be months before President Bill Clinton signed the bill into law. To Musk and others, laws made during the Great Depression's bust didn't suit the digital economy's boom. What can be very frustrating is that regulation is often irrational, Musk would later say, and you can try to convince them those rules don't make any sense, but they won't listen to you. Well into his SpaceX years, Musk would propose a solution to this problem for a future Mars government, suggesting that all Martian laws include automatic sunset clauses. Most likely, the form of government on Mars would be direct democracy, not representative. Musk elaborated at the Recode Code Conference in 2016. So it would be people voting directly on issues. And I think that's probably better because the potential for corruption is substantially diminished in a direct versus a representative democracy. So I think that's probably what would occur. 
I would recommend some adjustment for the inertia of laws. That would be wise. It should probably be easier to remove a law than create one. That's probably good. Laws have infinite life unless they're taken away. So I think my recommendation would be something like 60% of people need to vote in a law, but at any point greater than 40% of people can remove it. And any law should come with a built-in sunset provision. If it's not good enough to be voted back in, that would be my recommendation. Direct democracy where it's slightly harder to put laws in place than to take them away, and where laws don't automatically just live forever. At the time, Musk decided that X.com should plow ahead. We shouldn't be afraid to break a few eggs along the way, Musk told Payne. X.com's attorney supported Musk, reportedly telling the team that when the time was right, they would approach the relevant regulators. The key, per the team's attorney, was banking venture capital money and squaring circles later. When approached with the conundrum that we have in terms of the desire not to misrepresent ourselves to potential venture capitalists, Johnson's reply was, The deer is almost in the box. Don't spook the deer. Business plans change all the time. One early X.com employee remembered. The finance veterans on the team worried about this strategy. In this industry, they knew, regulations were not to be ignored. You have capital requirements, reporting requirements, privacy requirements, on and on and on, Payne said. We have to be responsible and sensitive that this is a regulated industry. Some early employees grew concerned that the company and its officers could face legal trouble if they played fast and loose with financial rules. Fricker and Musk in particular began to butt heads, a fissure that defined X.com's first several months. On top of Musk's regulatory approach, Fricker took exception to his hiring of a public relations firm to generate headlines for the fledgling company, and his use of equity to purchase the X.com domain. To Fricker, these were expensive extravagances that didn't advance the core work of the business. To Musk, these were essential costs to compete successfully in a crowded market. Fricker also became flummoxed by Musk's promise that X.com would handle everything under the financial sun. The description of what we were doing was ten times what we were actually doing. And if there was frustration, it was that I wanted to get something built, regulated, and productized, Fricker said. The more we described what we were going to build, the more difficult the project became to do that. Fricker tried to narrow the company's scope. In his conception, X.com would succeed by focusing on two specific services, marrying traditional banking offerings to index funds and providing financial advice. Needless to say, Musk was less than receptive. From his point of view, that strategy clipped X.com's wings unnecessarily. Financial advisory also added a cost- and labor-intensive human element to what Musk saw as a primarily digital company. Fricker and Payne had run models about X.com's growth and revenue, 
but the numbers on the financial superstore model didn't seem to add up. This was all a little bizarre to me. My training was very classic Wall Street, very fact-based, very numerical, very much spreadsheets and sort of forced complexity around what you thought the future was going to be, Payne said. It was logical and mechanical, especially around how I thought you analyze risk and opportunity. To Musk, the models didn't add up because the assumptions baked into the models were false. What was more potent than the mathematical exercise was the story, Payne would appreciate later. And Elon was very good at pointing to the future, just as he is today, and saying, the objective is over there, and I know it's over there, and we should all go over there. Even in hyper-rational Silicon Valley, vision weighed as much as data. There's a reason why entrepreneurs who succeed in the technology world get paid as well as they do. It's because it's not a straight line between I build the factory and the widgets come out and the widgets get sold, Payne said. Fricker grew increasingly frustrated by the engineering team that Musk led, specifically its unwillingness to deliver even preliminary widgets. To X.com's engineers... The work wasn't incomplete, so much as in progress. Programming, like writing, was halting and uncertain, less paint-by-numbers than most appreciated. It's not linear, and you might burn three hours going this way, and you go, ah, shit, and you don't want to tell someone you went down the blind alley, Ho said. But those blind alleys mattered. At Zip2, Musk had learned that startup success wasn't just about dreaming up the right ideas as much as discovering and then rapidly discarding the wrong ones. You start off with an idea, and that idea is mostly wrong. And then you adapt that idea and keep refining it, and you listen to criticism. He'd tell an audience years later. And then engage in sort of a recursive self-improvement. Keep iterating on a loop that says... Am I doing something useful for other people? Because that's what a company is supposed to do. Too much precision in early plans, he believed, cut that iterative loop prematurely. Fricker, on the other hand, had grown up in finance. Precision marked every facet of his life. He'd arrive at the X.com office early, the financial markets opened at 6.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, by which time Fricker would already be hard at work. By contrast, Musk would regularly conclude his workday at 3 or 4 in the morning with a catnap on his office floor, just hours before Fricker would arrive. To Fricker, this was a sign of Musk's disconnection from the company. But to Musk, late nights were just how startups operated. It became yet another source of friction between them. The mounting tensions spilled into meetings, fueled by Frickers and Musk's intense and impatient personalities. Some co-workers found the conflict confusing. Ed Ho, for instance, was perplexed at how quickly things went sour between Fricker and Musk. Whenever they'd get into these fights, I'd ask, Why are you guys so antagonistic? Isn't he your friend? Others were less surprised. 
Musk and Fricker had both run the show in prior roles. Power-sharing wasn't a particular strength for either of them. They were just never going to work together successfully, Payne concluded early on in the partnership. Fricker resented what he saw as Musk's insufficient commitment to X.com, but he attempted to repair the breach. On May 9, 1999, he wrote a long email to Musk, concluding with, Elon, please rejoin us in the trenches at X. As smart as you are, we are smart enough to know when it is not fully engaged. The curse of competent partners. He reminded Musk that the opportunity to work together had motivated his move to California in the first place. Musk responded graciously, but rejected Fricker's premise that he was asleep at the wheel. Well said, although I think you may misread me a little. My mind is always on X by default, even in my sleep. I am by nature obsessive-compulsive, Musk wrote back. What matters to me is winning, and not in a small way. Musk suggested they get dinner together that evening, and signed off, Your friend and partner in turn, Elon. Over the course of May and June of 1999, the fissures continued to widen. There were livid discussions, Ho said. The X.com team divided into camps. The Silicon Valley veterans, Musk and Ho, in one, and the financial veterans, Fricker, Payne, and Dixon, in the other. By several accounts, in July of 1999, the finance camp tried to shift X.com's strategy and shelve Musk as CEO. During this period, Peter Nicholson received a late-night phone call from Musk. His former intern was apoplectic, telling Nicholson that Fricker was trying to push him out of the company. He leaned on his mentor to set things right. Nicholson had no formal involvement with X.com, but out of concern for the protégés he had introduced years before, Nicholson assured Musk he would get in contact with Fricker the next day. Nicholson recalls Fricker saying, The team we put together is having a great deal of difficulty coping with Elon's management style. Fricker feared they might quit en masse. He also told Nicholson that Musk was brilliant, his ideas were farsighted, but you've got to be able to execute. Wisely, Nicholson chose to recuse himself from the conflict. I decided at that point that there was no point in me getting involved in this, Nicholson said. I really liked them both. I have a great deal of respect for them both. I have no idea what the inner machinations are, much less what it was like day to day at this startup. With or without Nicholson, things soon came to a head. Musk still held a controlling interest in X.com, and at the height of the drama, Musk called a meeting with Fricker and the company's lawyer. Other employees left the office in advance of what they anticipated would be a fiery discussion. We knew something was happening, Payne said. We left because we didn't want to be eavesdropping. The shouting began as they departed. In the end, Musk fired Fricker. In an unceremonious dismissal, Fricker arrived at the office one day, 
to discover that his computer had been wiped and his access to X.com files suspended. Co-founder Chris Payne was stunned. When it all fell apart, you have to scratch your head and think, what the hell just happened? He said. In the chaotic aftermath, rumors spread that Fricker was starting a new company and that he wanted much of the X.com team to join him. To head this off, Musk met with the remaining X.com employees, asked them each to stay, and promised a chunk of additional equity if they did. Elon sat everyone down in the conference room, was basically saying, look, are you in or are you out? Because if you're in, you're in, and we're going to build this thing. Engineer Doug Mack recalled. Chris Chen remembered that in his one-on-one with Musk, the X.com CEO emphasized that the additional equity was going to be worth a lot of money one day. Musk lobbied Payne to stay, a gesture that Payne appreciated. He was being very open and wanting me to stay, Payne said. Payne had always had positive interactions with Musk, but he felt loyal to Fricker. It was Fricker who had urged him to move to California. Out of respect, he thought it best to leave. Co-founder Ed Ho also departed, despite having been recruited by Musk. It kind of rattled Ed, Musk said. By Ho's own account, he loved working with Elon, but he had grown weary of months of infighting. He was also disenchanted by the X.com product roadmap. The idea of taking someone else's software and painting on top of that didn't thrill him. Ho briefly considered joining Fricker's next venture, but ultimately ended up creating his own startup. Several others sided with Musk, including Doug Mack, an engineer who had left IBM to join the company just weeks before the blow-up. Now, with three-quarters of X.com's co-founders gone, Mack wondered if he had chosen wisely. What persuaded Mack to stay, and gave him hope for the company's future, was Musk's pitch. There's something about Elon that I knew. If he's going to make something happen he would bet his last penny to make that happen, Max said. He wants to revolutionize how people do banking. He's going to do it. X.com employee number five, Julie Anderson, stayed with X.com as well. An Iowa native, Anderson came to the Bay Area after being rejected from the Peace Corps because of a back injury. She joined Deutsche Bank's technology group as a junior analyst, working under Frank Quattrone, and joining just as Deutsche Bank started to become a high-profile underwriter of technology IPOs, including Netscape, Amazon, Intuit, and many others. Anderson and her colleagues worked non-stop for the next two years, as the Internet came into its own. But the early thrills gave way to burnout. I sort of looked around, and everybody seemed to be getting cancer early, Anderson said. She left Deutsche Bank and apprenticed with a stained glassmaker out of a garage in San Mateo. When her savings ran out, a friend mentioned that she knew someone who had just sold a company and was starting another. Anderson was introduced to Musk over email, and she went to lunch at Palo Alto's Empire Tap Room with the entire four-person X.com team, 
Musk, Fricker, Ho, and Ping. The four now reduced to one, Anderson opted to stay with Musk anyway. At Deutsche Bank, she witnessed her share of startup executive turnover as companies prepared to go public. People are getting overthrown all the time, and the chances that your senior-level people are going to stay through is very, very small, Anderson said. Finding the right personalities is really, really hard. Like Mac and Chen, she was also inspired by Musk. I like to have something to believe in, she said, and Elon was always about changing the world or doing something good for humanity. She also appreciated Musk's quirks. When he has a hard problem on his mind, at least back in those days, he would spend a lot of time looking at his computer, like he was reading something or doing something, but I don't actually think he was reading something. He was just thinking. Or more like just waiting for the answer to come, Anderson said. Two decades later, Musk offered only brief reflections on the early chaos at X.com, calling it a hot minute in PayPal's history. There's always drama in startups, he said. Harris Fricker regretted how things ended. I would have handled things very differently, he said. He believed he should have been more open to Musk's strategy of courting investors and the press with a vision of what could be, as opposed to what was already built. Where I was wrong is that I should have suspended my traditional business judgment and realized that wasn't all that odd back then. Fricker's deeper regret was personal. He and Musk were more than co-workers. They had been friends. One of the biggest disappointments of my professional life was the blowing up of our relationship. We never addressed it, Fricker said. Following his divorce from X.com, Fricker tried to launch a financial advisory startup, WhatIfI.com. When it failed, he returned to Canada and found success again as a financial executive, including serving as CEO of GMP Capital. Looking back, Musk and Fricker's mutual mentor Peter Nicholson sensed a breakdown may have been unavoidable. They were two titanic talents, Nicholson said. Or maybe one was the iceberg and one was the ship. Chapter 5. The Beamers Fieldlink, Levchin's mobile device security startup, needed a CEO. Levchin briefly considered doing the job himself, but decided that he preferred the CTO role. A self-described engineer's engineer, Levchin felt his strengths lay in writing code, rather than managing a business and pitching investors. But if not himself, then who? Levchin wasn't a natural networker, and his Valley contact list remained sparse. He had asked Luke Nosek to introduce him to a few prospects, but none panned out. John Powers interviewed two candidates at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, and both were promising. The company extended them offers. Both turned Fieldlink down. We didn't have much money, he remembered, and the candidates were looking at 100K-plus starting salaries, which we couldn't come close to matching. 
That left Levchin with Peter Thiel. The only guy I knew who wasn't currently busy and could be CEO. Thiel hadn't lobbied for an expanded role at the company outside of his investment, but Levchin had watched him deftly handle the powers departure. Levchin called Thiel from his big-ass brick cell phone and popped the question. Would Thiel consider becoming Fieldlink's CEO? Initially, Thiel was uninterested. He huffed and puffed like Peter tends to do, Levchin remembered. It wasn't coerced, but I definitely had to work to persuade him. Thiel wanted Fieldlink to be successful, but he had no interest in a CEO's administrative and managerial duties. He preferred sticking to markets and money. But Thiel could also see the value in operating experience. Time in the CEO chair could fine-tune his investor antennae. So he proposed a compromise. He would serve as Fieldlink's ramp-up CEO, doing the job until the business found its footing. Then he would depart the position, remaining an advisor and letting someone else steer the business. Levchin agreed. Teal called Ken Howry, his fund's first employee, to let him know that he would be joining Fieldlink. Howry was concerned that Teal's new position would mean the end of Teal Capital Management. But Teal reassured him, proposing that Howry join him at Fieldlink during the day and that they continue to manage the fund on nights and weekends, which they did. As Fieldlink's new CEO, Teal stepped up the pressure to launch the company. As he surveyed the market, he saw a gathering blizzard of activity. Every minute, it seemed another startup was born. Teal emphasized the need for swiftness in hiring, fundraising, and releasing products. One day, Teal pushed Levchin to recruit more engineers. Well, yeah, but I'm coding, Levchin remembers telling him. But you need to hire more engineers. You're the CTO, Teal said. Sure, but I don't know anyone. You just graduated from one of the better computer science programs in the country. You don't know anyone? Teal replied. Oh, well, I guess I know some. Levchin considered two of his former UIUC classmates, Yu Pan and Russell Simmons. He had worked with both before, subcontracting one-off programming projects to them when his plate was full. Following graduation, Yu Pan moved to Rochester, Minnesota to work at IBM. But he second-guessed his decision after surviving his first Minnesota winter. Simmons described Pan's bleak existence. He would go to work, come home, eat rice with oyster sauce every day for dinner, and then play online video games. It was totally sad. In the winter of 1998, Levchin pitched Pan on Fieldlink, and the prospect of moving to California. Despite the draw of a more temperate climate, Pan was wary. He had made good money from Levchin's subcontracted programming work, but he thought of Levchin as a flake. After graduation, Levchin had abruptly left for California, without much warning to Pan and other friends. Several of Pan's emails to Levchin went unanswered. He just disappeared. What the hell happened to him? 
Pan remembered thinking. Am I going to get paid or anything? In my head it was like, Max, unreliable. Levchin reassured him that Fieldlink was a real funded company, and he'd stick around this time. Initially, Pan gave Levchin a resolute no. I was like, F you, I'm not coming out. This is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. I am not going to trust you. But Levchin kept selling the upsides of working at a startup, as well as Palo Alto's balmy climate and vibrant ultimate frisbee scene. Pan slowly came around. But there was another obstacle. Pan's family. Like Levchin and Teal, Pan's parents were immigrants. They viewed Pan's IBM job as a solid, stable opportunity conveniently located close to home. To them, Levchin's startup was the opposite in every way that mattered. A company no one had ever heard of, run by a college friend of their son's far away from Illinois. They needed a little convincing, Pan said. Pan asked Levchin to come to Chicago to do exactly that. Levchin hopped on a flight, went to Pan's home, and sold the family on the opportunity. The elder Pan satisfied, Yu Pan agreed to join Fieldlink as a senior engineer. Russell Simmons proved an easier recruit. Levchin had met Simmons working on ACM projects. Even in college, Levchin remembers Simmons standing out. Russ is brilliant, an outlier, genius-level IQ. He can learn anything he sets his mind to in half the time you expect him to. Post-college, Simmons enrolled in graduate school at UIUC for computer science. I'm not very strategic about anything in my life, Simmons said. And I haven't even thought about getting a job, and I am just like, I guess I'll go to grad school? I had no interest in starting companies or Silicon Valley or anything like that. When Levchin reached out in September of 1998, Simmons had grown bored with his master's program. In emails, he confessed to Levchin that he was considering quitting for a programming job in Texas. Levchin encouraged him to come to California instead. This place rocks, and you should move here and work on cool stuff, he wrote. By the end of the year, cool stuff meant Fieldlink. Like you, Penn, Simmons remembered needing some reassurance. I knew Levchin was smart, but it was like, is this dude for real? Am I going to actually have a job when I get out there? Another point of concern, Levchin told Simmons he'd have to pay a nominal sum to buy equity in Fieldlink. While this was standard in the startup world, Simmons was suspicious, and similar to Pan, he consulted his mom. She was like, whoa, 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 you haven't even started or gotten a salary, and they're asking you to send them money? This sounds like a scam. In spite of his reservations, Simmons decided to go for it. Simmons and Pan agreed to a Levchin pact. If Levchin bailed on them, they'd look out for each other. Besides, they saw little risk. The market for engineering talent in Silicon Valley was booming. Pan and Simmons flew west from Chicago on the same low-cost American Trans Air flight, and Levchin greeted them at the airport. 
Just as Levchin hustled to recruit employees, so did Teal. In addition to Ken Howry, Teal asked Luke Nosek to join Fieldlink. Like Pan and Simmons, Nosek was reluctant. For one thing, he was already developing a new startup in the aftermath of Smart Calendar, an online news betting platform, a sort of futures market for ideas. Teal cautioned against it when Nosek brought it up, warning him of the onerous regulations surrounding gambling and securities markets. Teal told Nosek he should join Fieldlink instead. Nosek was unsure. I thought security for handheld devices was really boring and kind of a dumb business idea, Nosek said. Both Teal and Levchin told Nosek that they'd iterate until they landed on a concept that struck sparks. More persuasive to Nosek was the team's alchemy, which now included three members, Levchin, Pan, and Simmons, that he knew from college. I decided to work on it because of this feeling that, together, we're going to do something amazing, Nosek said. Even if they had been wanting to do something completely different, I would have wanted to work with this group. Nosek was in, but Levchin raised a key concern. What exactly would Nosek do? His fellow Illinois grad was technically competent, but he wasn't a programming superstar. When Levchin posed the question to friends, another UIUC alum, Scott Bannister, provided the answer. That's obvious. He's going to do Luke things. Over time, Luke things would acquire a loose shape. Nosek would generate an endless flow of counterintuitive ideas, mostly related to marketing and customer acquisition. Luke was one of those people who could walk around and just bump into brilliant ideas, and they somehow were only visible to him, Levchin said. He'd suggest something and we'd say, well, that's insane, and then it turned out that it was this gem of an idea. He often sees loopholes that other people pass by, almost like spotting dollar bills on the ground that are inexplicably still there. Nosek was given the title Vice President of Marketing and Strategy, and he, Ross Simmons, Yupan, and Ken Howry were all named company co-founders. The work took place in co-founder apartments at 469 Grant Avenue, until Howry, once again tasked with securing real estate, found an office at 394 University Avenue. Howry outfitted the office with furniture from Nosek's previous startup and Levchin's Illinois IKEA collection. Howry and Nosek hand-assembled the cubicles. That's when I learned that Ken always finds a way to enjoy anything, Nosek said. He was the most enthusiastic person about the office assembly process. With a new home, Levchin decided it was time to change the company's name. He had never loved Fieldlink, and decided to blend the words confidence and infinity to form confinity. Soon, Levchin had naming remorse. Everybody I told about it was like, Con. So, is it like a great con? Like a company that's going to con people out of money? That was the last time I named a company, Levchin said. The company's renaming, ill-advised or not, 
reflected a strategic reorientation. In its previous incarnations, FieldLink had focused on connecting mobile workers securely, building on Levchin's and Powers' consulting work, and Levchin's secure pilot product. But as Levchin and Teal began to see, FieldLink wasn't the only player in the mobile security space. Levchin had been working to ingratiate himself with 3Com, the parent company of Palm Pilot, for years. He was a regular attendee at the company's conferences and became Palm Pilot's 153rd registered developer. He had also befriended Griff Coleman, Palm's product manager for enterprise solutions. Levchin's goal? Get Palm to change its code base to support Levchin's security software. At one point, Levchin pulled a daring attempt at cold outreach. He attended a developer conference at 3Com's office, and he followed Palm CEO Jeff Hawkins outside after Hawkins finished his conference keynote. Levchin approached him and asked for a ride home. Hawkins agreed, believing Levchin to be a stranded 3Com employee. Levchin gave vague directions in order to lengthen the ride, but a few confusing turns later, Hawkins had reached the limits of politeness, asking, Can I just drop you off here? Well, Levchin responded gently, Can you just talk to me for a few more minutes about the security that your operating system will need very soon? Levchin says Hawkins told him that Palm had already partnered with a Canadian company called Certicom for its security needs. I thought, oh, fuck. They have someone else working on this, Levchin said. There were other concerning signs, too. Levchin and Teal were having a hard time selling enterprise customers on the need for mobile security. We realized that, even though the theory was pretty much logical, the move of the enterprise to handheld devices was not actually forthcoming, Levchin said later. Kind of like the early Christians in the first century were all really hard at work waiting for the second coming. Still waiting. Any minute now, there will be millions of people begging for security on their handheld devices. It just wasn't happening. The company would need to change course. Confinity's original plan had succeeded in one important sense, earning funding. The team closed a $500,000 funding round in February 1999, raised largely from friends and family. Teal's fund contributed $240,000, and Scott Bannister provided another $100,000. Families helped as well. An additional $35,000 came from Teal's parents, and $25,000 from Ken Howry's parents. Another $50,000 came from Friends of Teal's. $25,000 from Edward Bogus, a musician and chess player from San Francisco, and $25,000 from Norman Book, Teal's Stanford classmate and the Stanford Review co-founder. A final $50,000 came from the investment firm Goodall Capital. Goodall, run by Australian natives Peter Davison and Graham Lynette, was new to the American technology scene. With few connections, Davison and Lynette went looking for deals with a little hair on them, as Lynette put it. I didn't know anything about startups, 
hadn't ever done a thing in investment. And we were just going to be venture capitalists, Davison said. Confinity was Gödel's first venture capital deal, which it agreed to close only after Teal included a two-week penalty-free out clause. On February 26, 1999, the day after closing its investment round, Confinity sent Davison, Lynette, and its other investors an 18-page document outlining a strategy shift. Selling business-to-business mobile security was not working. Instead, the company would pivot to become consumer-facing. Confinity would launch a mobile wallet for handheld devices— an attempt to obsolete physical wallets. Mobile Wallet would secure financial information and allow users to send currency and conduct e-commerce, all from a Palm Pilot. As a blueprint for the mobile future, Confinity's February 1999 business plan holds up surprisingly well. The company planned on riding the growth of the handheld computer and electronic finance markets. Today's handheld computer market shares certain characteristics with the Internet of 1995 and the home computer market of 1980, the plan stated. New applications and lower costs are shifting demand from a core group of technologists toward the general public. In theory, the expanding number of handheld devices would grow mobile wallet usage, and users would install the mobile wallet because their friends and family already had one. The business plan anticipated the obvious question. How will the Confinity network ever come into being if its value to each particular customer depends on the prior existence of the whole network? The team developed two approaches to addressing this tautology, top-down and bottom-up. From the top down, Confinity would find and target prime business and market candidates. The bottom-up approach would see users inviting members of their own networks. Confinity, its founders wrote, will combine these two approaches, albeit with the major initial emphasis on the second, grassroots model. Then, Confinity believed, the market would be theirs for the taking and keeping. It was only a matter of scaling, linking vendors and merchants, creating credit cards, and offering internet banking. Et voila! As the Confinity network grows, the cost of transition to other authentication companies will become prohibitively high, creating an effective barrier to new entrants. The company sought $4 million in funding to see this vision through and build out the team and the product which was expected to launch six months later in August 1999. At the time of the plan's writing, Confinity consisted of not much more than six people, $500,000, a leased office space above a bakery, and some used IKEA furniture. But the team was swinging for the fences. Once the mobile wallet achieved ubiquity, Confinity's default exit strategy consists of an acquisition by a financial institution or technology company, which would be best positioned to take advantage of Confinity's customer network. Or the alternative, 
A successful and aggressive leveraging of the e-finance platform could turn Confinity into a global financial institution, offering a complete suite of customer banking services. Under this scenario, Confinity would push all the way to an IPO. In the plan, the preamble to the founders' biographies offered a window into how Thiel and Levchin thought about building startup teams at the time. In bringing together Confinity's founders, we have been driven by two overriding considerations. The first is to identify people who are highly talented and individually diverse, so that each of them is capable of taking on several different business and technology tasks. The second is to form a group that will work well as a team. Each of Confinity's founders has worked with at least one other founder in some past startup context. As a result, we are aware of both the strengths and weaknesses of each member of the core team. We know who is best at what and how to allocate the various tasks. This common history enables Confinity to execute with efficiency and celerity. Later, in his role as an investor and advisor, Thiel emphasized the importance of a team's prehistory, the bonds of work and friendship that exist prior to starting a venture. At least on Levchin's end, Confinity's prehistory was long. Nosek, Pan, and Simmons were friends from Illinois. Other early employees came through that network, and Thiel's Stanford contacts. There were downsides to this approach, too, of course. Hiring friends risked a cloistered, exclusionary monoculture and made it exceptionally hard to let people go. But Teal's view was that trust among teams was hard to build, and that friends-turned-employees came pre-installed with trust. It was this network-hiring sort of effect where we had a great deal of trust that everybody was reasonably bright and trying to work toward making this successful, early employee David Wallace recalled. Trust produced speed. We could be at a much faster cycle than a lot of companies, where you have to take a month to sort of message things throughout the company before you could say what you were trying to say. Wallace, a mild-mannered personality, also felt a comfort level, speaking up at Confinity. If I had been walking into somewhere where I didn't know anybody, I wouldn't have been talking that way. Engineer Santos Janardhan didn't join the PayPal team until 2001, but he got a fast education in how the company's senior leaders trusted even fresh hires. In the first few hours of his first day on the database team, Janardhan was given the root password for PayPal's database. His boss, Paul Tuckfield, was like, Play around with it and let me know if you have questions. Soon thereafter, Janardhan saw Tuckfield and the company's CTO, Levchin, approaching him. So Paul and Max walk over and they're like, Hey, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking around trying to understand the layout of the databases, looking at the tables and stuff. I was doing some database queries. They're like, The site just had a blip. Did you just take it down? I'm like, fuck no. And they both look at each other and go, cool, and walk back. Chinardhan was amazed. If you think through this, five minutes into me joining, they gave me the root password for the site. 
the amount of either foolhardiness or trust it takes is amazing, right? On the flip side, when I said I didn't take the site down, they just said, okay, and walked away. There was no grilling. There was no show me what you're doing. In a weird way, I felt more in the trust circle than anything else they could have ever done. Chinardon had not been a friend of friend, nor a University of Illinois or Stanford graduate, and he joined the company later in its life cycle. But he too sensed the power in hiring for trust. They hired really good people, gave them a lot of trust, and so people ran at their own pace, just made sure that they checkpointed to make sure we were in sync occasionally. And then we would just keep on running. So they got the best out of some very, very smart people. In many ways, the wisdom of PayPal's hiring only became apparent later, after the company's success validated the early team design. At the time, the founder's logic was more practical than philosophical, and driven more by expediency than experience. We had to recruit our friends because no one else would work for us, PayPal's future COO David Sachs would later say. From 1994 to 1999, the internet talent pool had gone pro. Companies like Amazon, Google, and Netscape that famously launched in garages, trailers, and dorms now labored from spacious offices. They offered generous salaries, ample benefits, and stock options worth actual rather than just theoretical money. They could also afford expensive recruiting firms to source the best talent in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. By contrast, Confinity had no reputation, no products, and no traction. It was a challenge because, basically, it was very hard to recruit people into this totally untried company, Teal said. Vince Salito had been working as a communications director for a senator in Washington, D.C., when David Sachs approached him about working at Confinity. Salito remembered his wife's skepticism and the couple's truce. We can do it, he remembered her saying. We're not going to sell our Washington house. We're going to rent our house out for a year. And then, when this thing flames out in a year, we have to come home. That's the bargain. Confinity was also competing for talent against any number of totally untried companies that mushroomed during the internet boom, a period of rapid growth that caused an unprecedented demand for software engineers. As Janardhan put it, if you had a pulse, you got a job. It was that kind of thing in 1999. That environment forced Levchin and Teal to recruit friends and close contacts. One of Confinity's earliest engineers, Tomas Pytel, was a prototypical case. As teenagers, Pytel and Levchin first met as Delph, Levchin, and Tran, Pytel the handles they used in a computer art subculture called Demoscene. Groups of Demoscene coders competed to showcase cutting-edge digital graphics, and Pytel had become a legend in this community for his breathtaking visualizations. I did have a lot of time to dedicate to Demoscene, Pytel recalled, because I was always cutting school. In fact, I dropped out of high school because it was just pointless. 
Pytel was a Polish immigrant to the United States, and his computing baptism resembled Levchin's in its rigor. My mother bought me a computer when I was in the fourth grade. It was a Commodore 16 with a dataset, not a disk drive, a dataset, which promptly broke after a couple of months. Which means that every time I turned on the machine, whatever I was playing around with, I had to write from scratch, basically. So, I guess in terms of programming practice, that would be the software equivalent of maybe Rocky Balboa hitting a side of beef. And I was hooked from then on. By the time he left high school in his sophomore year, Pytel had already cobbled together different contract programming jobs to pay the bills, including writing code for the video game software firm Epic Games. Years later, he was traveling across the country when he stopped in Palo Alto to see Levchin, Simmons, and Pan. He was a true vagabond nomad, Levchin remembered of Pytel. When he arrived at the Confinity office during his stop in California, Pytel wore a pair of tattered water slippers. His toes were sticking out, Simmons said. Later PayPal employees recalled that the decrepit footwear stuck around even as the company thrived. They were the most comfortable shoes I'd gotten in a while, Pytel remembered. And I just loved them so much that I just wore them everywhere. Odd shoes were no matter. At Confinity, the eccentricities of the talented were easily excused. Levchin made an aggressive effort to bring Pytel aboard the team, and when he agreed, it gave Simmons and Pan hope. The fact that he joined the team was a big deal, Simmons said. For Pytel, the decision was invested with far less significance. At that point in your life, when you're that young, you don't really pay attention to risk, he recalled. It's just like, yeah, okay, this looks cool. Let's do this for a while. Confinity's Tom Pytel was talented enough to earn a doctorate, but too defiant to replace worn footwear. He had time on his hands, and he tolerated the team's notions about world-beating Palm Pilot wallets. Brilliance, nonconformity, availability, and the willing suspension of disbelief. These qualities defined Confinity's first hires and formed the foundation of its culture. Almost right away, Confinity's mobile wallet pitch ran into the same market problem as the FieldLink security software. People weren't begging to swap actual wallets for virtual ones. Even as they coded furiously, the team wondered about the mobile wallet's efficacy. That prompted a series of team discussions in the spring of 1999, reflecting on their creations and considering alternative use cases. The question was less technical than it was logical. What information was better stored inside a Palm Pilot than a normal wallet. One idea, passwords. Passwords on paper slips tucked into a real wallet were vulnerable to theft. If you store them in your Palm Pilot, you could secure it further with a secondary passphrase that protects it, Levchin said. This was a promising concept and, indeed, a forerunner of today's password managers. But at the time, the handheld device market was still small, and the market for Palm Pilot password managers even smaller. Compounding the challenge for Confinity, 
passwords lacked glamour. The eras.coms were busily pitching technological revolution, promising to do everything from deliver groceries to play Cupid. Even Levchin admitted that Confinity's pitch for a password manager seemed dull by comparison. The password concept, though unsuccessful, gave rise to a vital question. What were other protectable slips of paper? One possible answer was bank checks and paper money. The next iteration was this thing that would cryptographically secure IOU notes. I would say IOU $10 and put in my passphrase, Levchin recalled. The digital IOUs would be stored until the user docked their Palm Pilot to a computer, at which point the payments would clear. Essentially, Confinity had created primitive digital checks, marrying handheld devices and finance. But as with the earlier ideas, Palm Pilot-based IOUs didn't represent a stop-the-presses breakthrough. That is, until the team tweaked the product yet again. For its 1998 generation of Palm 3s, Palm tucked a half-inch sliver of red plastic into the corner. Palm pitched this infrared IR port as a way for Palm Pilot users to beam information. But even as IR-bearing Palm Pilots shipped, it wasn't exactly clear what users would beam. Not all applications can use the beaming feature. Even the built-in programs, such as Palm Mail and Expense, can't beam items. Palm Pilot for Dummies noted. But more and more Palm add-on programs include a beaming feature as time goes on, so you can start to plan on beaming things that you create from your Palm to another. The ports proved notoriously glitchy. Two Palm devices lose sight of each other when they're about four feet apart, the same guide noted, and they also have some trouble communicating at less than three inches or so. But such novelties were catnip to early adopters, and software engineers filled forums with possible use cases. While the port is not powerful enough to act as, say, a remote control for a television, one developer wrote, it does have enough power to support palm-to-palm communications of most any kind of data. What followed was a several-thousand-word guide on how to configure the IR port to play Battleship. The IR port foreshadowed a future of pocket-sized devices in fluid communication. But in 1999, the port was a clever feature without a concrete purpose. However, the Confinity team, early adopters all, had such a purpose in mind. Beaming money. Picture the scene. A few technophiles are at lunch in Palo Alto. The check arrives, and the onerous task of dividing up the bill begins. One diner reminds the group that they have Palm Pilots, which include a calculator and Confinity's money-beaming software. Presto! Debts beamed, tab divided. Confinity would reorient the company, its software, and its pitch around beaming money from Palm Pilot to Palm Pilot. This idea had two virtues. First, 
It leveraged the thousands of lines of cryptographic handheld device code they'd already written. Second, it was a new thing in the world. To date, no one had made much use of the Palm Pilot IR ports, other than swapping notes or sinking battleships. In beaming money, Confinity had an IR port use case. In retrospect, Levchin chuckled at the idea, calling it quaint and silly. Years later, he joked to Jessica Livingston, author and founder of the seed-stage venture firm Y Combinator, What would you rather do? Take out $5 and give someone their lunch share? Or pull out two Palm Pilots and geek out at the table? But at the time, Levchin remembered that the idea had freshness. It was so weird and innovative. The geek crowd was like, wow, this is the future. Laurie Schulteis was a paralegal at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, the law firm that Levchin and Teal used to incorporate and handle their financing paperwork. She, too, was initially skeptical of her clients' money-beaming ambitions. I remember thinking, this is a really weird idea. Like, I don't know that people are going to go for this because all that Palm Pilot technology was new, Schulteis said. She dutifully filed the company's incorporation papers, even as she wondered about their prospects. Later, Schulteis left the law firm to join PayPal as an office manager and rose to become a company vice president. From Teal's perspective, beaming money gave the company a glitzy new story. By piggybacking on the moment's futuristic technology, the company could make a convincing fundraising pitch. The half a million dollars Confinity had raised from friends and family wouldn't go very far, especially as they staffed up. So the team prepared a PowerPoint pitch deck, focused on this product evolution. Beaming money via Palm Pilot, the deck boasted, was a billion-dollar opportunity. Better than cash, better than checks, and better than credit cards. More importantly, Confinity would capture part of seigniorage as it shifts from the U.S. Treasury. Seigniorage is the difference between the face value of money and its production cost. An ancient concept. If you bring the Royal Mint 100 pounds of silver and get back 99 pounds in silver coins, the one pound difference is seigniorage, a tax the king takes in return for transforming your silver into currency. Teal hypothesized that technology companies rather than the government could serve as the intermediary and keep this tax for themselves. It was a bit of an abstruse concept. To this day, I don't fully understand what he meant, Levchin admitted. But the numbers were real. Per the estimates in the deck, seigniorage was worth almost $25 billion per year in the U.S. If Confinity captured even a modest 4% of that, the company would net $1 billion. Teal and Levchin envisioned a cashless mobile world with Confinity linking central banks, credit card companies, and retail banks. The company hoped to turn Palm Pilots into the default form of payment and money transfer, replacing cash and checks. By 2002, 
if all went according to plan. Confinity projected $25 million in annual revenue from the success of its mobile wallet and beaming products. As it turns out, their revenue estimate was off by about a factor of eight. Eight times too low. Compelling as the concept seemed to the team, they struggled once again to sell it. In February 1999, Levchin attended the International Financial Cryptography Association Conference. Hosted in Anguilla, a sliver of a Caribbean island, the annual gathering drew the leading players in academic cryptography and digital currencies. To this day, Thiel, who attended the 2000 conference, harbors a theory that Satoshi Nakamoto, the mysterious founder of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, was among the attendees. At the conference, Levchin wanted to test the waters for his idea of a cashless, all-digital, Palm Pilot-based money system. The academics were unimpressed. They had been thinking about this problem for a long time. It is hard to understate the degree of anger and resentment that the people felt, Teal said. Unfortunately, Confinity was pitching its concepts amid a series of spectacular digital currency failures, including the recent bankruptcy of Digicash. To the assemblage of financial crypto experts, Teal and Levchin came off as arrogant, uninformed outsiders, unaware of the decade of wasted effort before their arrival on the scene. Academics weren't the only ones giving Confinity the cold shoulder. Mark Richardson was a consultant who had connected with Teal, helped revise the early business plans, and made introductions to some of his contacts and financial services. Richardson recalled J.P. Morgan Chase Banker's dismissive response to the money-beaming pitch. He said, We've looked at, we've tested, we've tried to get people to use money in a different way than an ATM or a credit card. And there's been all kinds of thoughts about how to get that done, and tests and pilots. We just don't see people being comfortable getting away from cash, ATMs at the time, and credit cards. Venture capitalists, too, were unenthused. During what Teal called an excruciating process, the team presented over 100 times, with pitch after pitch falling flat. Would-be investors asked sensible questions. Would people really beam money from handheld devices? What were the odds that four separate lunchtime companions would all own Palm Pilots and have Mobile Wallet installed? Also. What exactly was seniorage? And could Confinity really make money, as Teal put it, off the float? As the rejections piled up, the team grew desperate. They began cold outreach to venture firms beyond Silicon Valley. Luke Nosek used contacts to earn a meeting with the venture division of the European mobile company Nokia. Incidentally, John Powers had pitched John Malloy on FieldLink months before the Malloy-Nosek connection, to no avail. Nokia had a bunch of good ideas on adopting the Palm OS, Powers remembered. The meeting with the head of Nokia Ventures, John Malloy, got off to a rocky start. Levchin and Nosek both arrived in shorts and flip-flops. You just didn't do that shit with VCs in that day, 
Malloy said of their attire. The team also seemed distracted. They were so excited about being able to send device-to-device payments by infrared that they wouldn't stop doing it. I'm trying to have an adult conversation with them, and it was crazy. It was like, guys, okay, Malloy said. I called them the Beamers. Malloy worked for Nokia, a mobile device company. But even to him, some of Confinity's claims seemed a long shot. Peter looked me dead in the eye and said, We're going to be the dominant payment system for the palm economy, Malloy recalled. He remembered thinking, Really? Shit, come on, man, what kind of objective is that? Still, Malloy and his partner at Nokia Ventures, Pete Buell, left the meeting intrigued. Nokia had been circling around mobile payments, and they believed in the technology's future. Confinity was on to something. Far more impressive to Buell and Malloy was the team itself. There was a unique energy about them. They just so stood out, Malloy said. Buell agreed. You have Peter, this super-smart business guy, Max, the allegedly super-smart technical guy, and then Luke, the ideas guy. Malloy anticipated that Confinity's Palm Pilot ideas wouldn't work out as pitched, but that the team possessed the raw material to find something that would. Buell and Malloy signaled their interests, and they ran due diligence on the team. Buell approached two Stanford professors, Dr. Dan Bonet and Dr. Martin Hellman, who served as Confinity technical advisors. Bonet was a young professor at Stanford known for his work on handheld device cryptography. Hellman was renowned as the inventor of public key cryptography. They told Buell that Levchin was the real deal. In a way, said Buell, the real insurance policy was how incredible Max was by reputation. Malloy set up a meeting between Levchin and the president of Nokia, Dr. Pekka Alapietala. Malloy didn't need Alapietala's approval to invest in Confinity, but he wanted to give Nokia's president the chance to connect with this young Silicon Valley engineer, which had been one of Nokia's goals in seeding startups in the first place. Levchin, though, didn't get the memo. He interpreted the time with Alapietala as more final exam than meet-and-greet, with Confinity's future hanging in the balance. Adding to the pressure, Alapietala was the leader of one of the world's foremost technology companies, one that actually built and sold mobile technology to millions of people. In the weeks leading up to the meeting, Levchin mainlined mobile knowledge. When they finally met face-to-face, Alapietala dove in with technical questions, including how Levchin could get low-power palm pilots to perform highly complex calculations. A well-prepared Levchin summarized the differences between different cryptographic standards, the algorithms used to secure systems, and explained how he'd get maximum security at minimum processing speed. Coming into the meeting, Levchin thought Alapietala might render an instant judgment on Nokia's investment. But as the discussion ended, Alapietala simply thanked Levchin for coming in. It felt concerningly anticlimactic. When Thiel asked Levchin how he did, 
Levchin answered, honestly. I don't know. I think I did fine, but I wouldn't know if I failed. Shortly after the meeting, Malloy received a positive review on Levchin from Alapietala. Nokia Ventures would draft terms for its investment in Confinity. In the Silicon Valley venture capital pecking order, firms backed by corporate partners like Nokia ranked near the bottom. At the time, Nokia Ventures had another knock against it. Buell and Malloy's small operation had no investing track record, no lengthy list of exits and IPOs, which is why Confinity briefly flirted with an offer of investment from a better-known firm. Draper Fisher Jervitson, DFJ, had found some success with consumer internet investments, including an early stake in the breakthrough email service Hotmail. But despite the temptation of its superior reputation, Teal persuaded the team to stick with Nokia Ventures, which offered a larger sum of money on more favorable terms. In 1999, Nokia Ventures made its third-ever investment, leading a $4.5 million investment round in Confinity. The funding gave Teal and Levchin the semblance of a professional operation, they could now boast venture backing, a tentative roadmap, and a board of directors. Nokia's John Malloy joined the company's board and engaged deeply with its people and operations. He'd find himself at the center of the company's highest profile and most sensitive controversies, and he'd take on the role of investor therapist, with execs and employees alike turning to him to air their grievances. John was a great presence for us, Scott Bannister said. Levchin went one step further and described him as the unsung hero of the PayPal story. Malloy's involvement began ominously. Malloy and Teal hammered out the final details for the investment on the phone. Just as Malloy was taking Nokia's president, a la Pietaila, sailing. By Malloy's account, the boat's owner had bought himself too much boat, and the craft hit high winds and choppy seas. The propeller malfunctioned, and they retreated gingerly to the dock. That ride becomes a total shitshow, Malloy remembered. It was a tumultuous day. Chapter 6 Hosed Throughout the spring and early summer of 1999, Confinity and X.com occupied adjoining office suites at 394 University Avenue in Palo Alto. After the fact, much was made of the two companies' cohabitation, but it started as mere coincidence. X.com and Confinity were neither competitors nor collaborators. Confinity pursued mobile money transfer and cryptography, while X.com went about building its financial services superstore. Each company thought the other was misguided. Musk was unreserved in his criticism of Palm Pilot money beaming. I'm like, that's a dumb idea, they're doomed, he remembered thinking. Meanwhile, Confinity expected X.com to sink in regulatory quicksand. 
Despite divergent approaches to financial technology, the company's CEOs shared an obsession. Getting noticed. Just as Musk courted media attention for X.com, Thiel made generating headlines a top priority. He had just closed Confinity's investment deal with Nokia Ventures, and he wanted a big, splashy event to trumpet the deal, and demo the team's breakthrough beaming technology. The team chose Bucks of Woodside for the event. Bucks, whose kitschy decor included porcelain cowboy boots, an authentic Russian cosmonaut suit, and a scaled-down Statue of Liberty, earned frequent visits from the technology set, and a storied place in tech lore. Bucks was one of the first U.S. restaurants with public Wi-Fi, and Hotmail was reportedly incorporated at one of its tables. Confinity hoped to add another chapter to Buck's history. Teal planned to use Palm Pilots to beam the $4.5 million investment from Nokia Ventures' bank account to Confinity's in real time. But the beaming at Buck's would be easier said than done. The infrared technology didn't work for shit, Levchin remembered. Nonetheless, Levchin insisted that the beaming be a real, encrypted transaction, not a facsimile. Despite the engineering team's hard work, its codebase was far from finished. The stuff was barely working, Pan admitted. To prepare for the beaming at Bucks, Levchin had to hastily create his own security protocols and update the app's user interface, including its buttons. He copied most of the buttons from a different Palm Pilot calculator application and frantically coded a brand new send button for the demo. Soon, the team faced a more harrowing problem than hastily built buttons. In order for a programmer's code to work, it had to be compiled the process that turns coded commands into a language machines can comprehend. It's during compiling that programming errors are discovered and fixed. Mere days before the Bucks event, Russ Simmons discovered that UPenn hadn't compiled his code. For months. And, of course, we tried to compile, and he has something like a thousand errors, Levchin said. A dead sprint followed. From that point on, the insane mad rush to the Bucks beaming begins. The three of us did not sleep at all. Yupan was basically near catatonic by the end of the third day, Levchin recalled. Scheduled for the morning of Friday, July 23, 1999, Levchin and the team pulled back-to-back all-nighters, double and triple checking code until just before the event. As the sun rose that Friday, Levchin realized he'd been wearing the same pair of pants several days in a row. I need to change my pants, he thought to himself. So Levchin got in his car, drove home, and swapped out pants. Pants upgraded, he raced to Bucks. When Levchin arrived, Teal was already there, hobnobbing with Pete Buell from Nokia Ventures. Teal had managed to attract several local television stations to cover the event, 
and their satellite trucks idled nearby. Levchin had prepared two palm pilots for the transaction. He handed one to Buell and the other to Teal. Standing before the cameras, Buell took his device and used the stylus to enter Nokia's payment. Four, five, zero, 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 zero. He positioned 